0: Well, good evening. Okay, 2 Chronicles chapter 10, verse 11, where we left off last week. We're learning about the reign of Solomon, and we've had at least two studies already uh, going through this first portion of this book, actually three now that I think about it. Uh, as we've gone through this, learning more and more about the reign of Solomon, we now come to the end of the reign of Solomon. But before we do, uh, part of what is going to be talked about in our study this evening is the fact that Solomon had such great potential. He truly had probably more potential than most, and he reached a lot of his potential in a lot of areas of his life. In fact, it would be fair to say that in all the areas of his life, he reached his full potential with the exception of one. His worship and his heart for God, maybe toward the end of his life, he began to have a, an appreciation for God. But considering that his father was David, the psalmist of Israel, a worshiper in heart and indeed it 's amazing how little Solomon gave his heart to the Lord in worship, you would think the man who was called to build the temple would understand the heart of worship, and the truth is he understood the mechanics. He provided for the people an opportunity and a place to worship. But he just truly did not understand the heart of worship. I think more than anything else, what we want to do this evening is we want to take the time and ask ourselves this question. Are we reaching our full potential as worshipers of God? Or are there some areas that we can grow in, in terms of surrender, in terms of praise, in terms of giving our hearts to God and and freely surrendering to all that he desires to do in and through our life? That's our question as we go into our study this evening and examine the life of Solomon. Let's pray. Lord, Heavenly Father, we thank you. May tonight's study be encouraging to us to become more and more like Jesus, your Son, who as God and as man worship the Father, giving us an example on how to live and how to give our hearts to you afresh and anew each day. Lord, may we, as we study this evening, grow closer to you. May we deal with those areas of our lives that are in the way, things that distract us or take our time, those priorities that shouldn't be or have a priority over our relationship with you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, first we're going to look at the fact that the Lord appeared to Solomon after he had finished building the temple And his palace. And I know that you've been a part of these studies. You know that God had appeared to Solomon before in a dream. And and now he appears to him. And it seems to me that the reason for this appearance has everything to do with the fact that Solomon was becoming distracted by his activities. The things he was doing, the works he was doing for God, were beginning to get in the way of his heart for God. And so we pick it up in chapter 7 and in verse 11. And I'm going to actually read To the rest of the chapter. It says here that when Solomon had finished the temple of the Lord in the royal palace and had succeeded in carrying out all he had in mind to do in the temple of the Lord and in his own palace, the Lord appeared to him at night and said, I have heard your prayer and I have chosen this place for myself as a temple for sacrifices. When I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain or command locusts to devour the land or send a plague among my people, if my people who are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray and seek my face, turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land. Now my eyes will be open and my ears attentive to the prayers offered in this place. I have chosen and consecrated this temple so that my name may be there forever. My eyes and my heart will always be there. God is essentially saying, this is the place I'll meet with you as you worship me. Then he goes on to say, as for you, if you walk before me as David your father did and do all I command and observe my decrees and laws, I will establish your royal throne as I covenanted with David your father when I said you shall never fail to have a man to rule over Israel. But if you turn away and forsake the decrees and commands I have given you and go off to serve other gods and worship them, then I will uproot Israel from my land which I have given them and will reject this temple I have consecrated for my name. I will make it a byword and an object of ridicule among all peoples. And though this temple is now so imposing, all who pass by will be appalled and will say, why has the Lord done such a thing to this land and to this temple? People will answer because they have forsaken the Lord, the God of their fathers, who brought them out of Egypt and have embraced other gods, worshiping and serving them. That is why he brought all this disaster on him excuse me, on them. God really speaks to Solomon about the future of the people of Israel, while at the same time warning each and every one of us to make sure that our hearts are right before him. The consequences of not having a heart for God, well, it's not having a heart for God. When you don't have a heart for God, things don't go well in your life. Things aren't in balance. Things are out of balance. And as a consequence of your life being out of balance, things that aren't so important become all too important, like money and relationships with others. They become more important than your relationship with God. And you've seen it, I've seen it, we've all seen it, perhaps we've even experienced it, that when you give your heart to things and not to God, or to things other than God, your life becomes so completely out of balance that you start to make really, really bad decisions. And you choose to do things that are harmful as opposed to helpful to yourself and to others. And we've seen it before, we'll see it again. Anytime a person sort of turns their back on God and begins to get involved in practices that are sinful, they suffer the consequences of a life lived against God and his word. So that's what we're going to see in the future. And and, and God really is mapping this out for Solomon, speaking not just of Solomon's life, but of all the children of Israel throughout their history. So Solomon had finished building these structures, the temple and his palace. The Lord appeared to him. This is about 946 B.C. after a total of about 20 years. So 20 years of building. It's interesting. We've been in this location uh, almost uh, 20 years. We we have been a church for almost 20 years. And it's amazing when you think, oh my goodness, so many things have happened in the last 20 years. But he had spent all of those 20 years just building projects, just building the temple. And then after that, building his palace and other building projects. It took him seven years to complete the temple, but 13 additional years to complete his palace. Now this would have included all the governmental buildings, the courts, all of the, the buildings that were a part of the government at that time. And so it took him all that time. The Lord had called him to build the temple, but he had desired to build his palace. He was the one that chose to do that. And God blessed him as he built his palace. Uh, He may have begun to turn away from the Lord during this time after he had built built the temple. Pursuing his own selfish desires may have distracted him from serving the Lord. And I want to warn you because You can get really caught up in getting an education. I've seen it happen to so many good, young Christian hearts. They get excited about their career prospects and their future. And they go away and they go to college and, you know, well, I'm too busy studying to go to church. Or I'm so involved in my coursework that I can't possibly spend time with the Lord. And by the time those four to five years are over, their heart has drifted very far from God because they made college and university and study more important than their relationship with God. You can't do that. You, you can't take four or five years off from a relationship with God and not expect to suffer. So, so many young people get off to a really bad start once they go to school. And then, of course, they get involved in their job and their career. And, of course, they're very busy trying to make a name for themselves. And then, once again, they're distracted from the Lord. Not all, but many fall into this trap. And so they get involved in that. And then they meet someone and they get involved in that relationship and it becomes all encompassing. And, you know, that's all they think about. And so the relationship with God, their church attendance, it gets pushed aside. Then they get married and then, oh, okay, there's being married and then there's having a family. And then before you know it, they're in a nursing home. And all they've done for the last, I mean, to jump ahead here, uh, all they've done is make excuses for why God wasn't the most important priority in their lives. See, the the problem is there's never a good time to put your flesh and your desires aside. So can I encourage you, maybe you're young, maybe you're not married, maybe you're recently married, maybe you just started having a family— all these things, there's no better time than the, presence to say, the present to say, listen, no matter what I'm doing, whether it be school, whether it be work, whether it be a relationship, whether it be family, there's no better time than now for me to say that God needs to be my priority. And if you do that now, it doesn't matter where you are in life. You could be in the nursing home. It doesn't matter. If you put God first now, then the rest of your life will be in balance. Don't be like Solomon who waited till the very end of his life to figure it out. Well, here's what we do know. The Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream to warn him not to turn away from him. It's a warning. He reminded Solomon of the temple dedication just 13 years earlier. He reminded Solomon that he would deliver Israel if they cried out to him. Uh, You know, I I read uh, the headline. I didn't read the whole article. I skimmed the article, but I read the headline. And uh, it was written by Franklin Graham. And it was on one of the news sites that I read regularly. And in essence, the gist of the article was that there's really only one hope for our nation and for the world, and that hope is Jesus Christ. So we talk about, oh, what are we going to do about the energy issues? What are we going to do about inflation? What are we going to do about our border? What are we going to do about this or that? And you can go through the litany of different issues we have to deal with today, but the answer is still the same. If we as a nation and as a culture turned our hearts away from celebrating perversions such as transgenderism and and the butchering of the English language to include pronouns improperly used, and if we turned our hearts away from celebrating perversions such as homosexuality and we said, you know, God's word says... And while we love those sinners, we acknowledge the truth of God's word, and so therefore we're going to live for God and according to his word. If we said those things and turned our hearts away from that silliness, that nonsense, that foolishness, that sinfulness, do you not believe that God would restore and heal our land? You know, we look at crime. How are we going to solve crime? Uh, the, The more important question is, are we serving God? Because it's amazing, when a culture begins to serve God, crime is not an issue. Oh, crime was always an issue in some regard, but not at the percentages we're seeing today. So the problem really is, does our nation seek the Lord? Many within our nation do. But an overwhelming, I think, at least a majority, maybe not an overwhelming majority, but certainly a, a majority of people do not. And so we are in our nation today reaping the consequences of a culture that has turned its back on God. Israel came to the same place eventually. But here, God is reminding Solomon of the temple dedication. He's reminding Solomon that he would deliver Israel if they cried out to him, promising in one of those most well-known scriptures, which we read there in verse 14, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves, that's the first thing. Second thing, pray and seek my face. And third thing, and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and forgive their sin." And will heal their land. That was a promise to Israel. But the principle is the same for all God's people today. But it's not a principle for people who are not considered God's people. So it's not fair to say if the United States will repent. It's fair to say if the Christians who are God's people in the United States. Okay, so it's if my people who are called by my name. Not, not a government. Not a constitution, no, a group of people, the church, within any culture, within any nation, were to do this, God will respond. If my people, who are called by my name, will humble themselves, they will pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. So really, this is about the church. So the good news is, as a pastor in a church, that I have the opportunity to speak to God's people. And this encouragement is to God's people. You might be thinking, well, there are people in Seattle who need to hear this message. But many of those people are not God's people. In fact, they've set themselves up against God and his his people, that is us. No, we need to speak to those within the church, those who consider themselves to be God's people, and give this message because there's hope in this message. And you might be saying, well, how can the church make a difference? Well, listen, 2,000 years ago, The church made all the difference in the world, literally, and continues to make a difference in the world. So please understand what Solomon's being told is true for us. Here God promised to deliver them during times of drought or plague. And we know what plague is. We have just lived through this pandemic. Okay. Drought. What's drought? When you go without. Uh, The supply chain uh, crisis that we're dealing with isn't quite a drought, but doing without things, well, that's probably going to become even more substantial in our culture today so he he's promised to deliver us from these types of things but we need to humble ourselves as we've said pray and seek his face turn from our wicked ways and he's promised to forgive the sin of his people and heal their land that was a promise in advance to Solomon for the people of Israel now he reminded Solomon that he had a conditional promise to David of his line of succession it was a promise but it was conditional if they continued to serve him there would be a man to sit on the throne of Israel forever. Of course, they didn't, and there wasn't. But for now, that's the promise that God had made, and he warned Solomon of the consequences if he or his descendants turned away from him. And of course, Solomon did, and so did his descendants. In so doing, the Lord really predicted Israel's future rebellion and the disaster that would surely follow. And as we go through Second Chronicles, we're going to live it in real time. We're going to look at all of the different kings And we're going to see how Israel, uh, the northern kingdom, and then the southern kingdom fell to their enemies because of the consequences of sin. Well, Solomon spent the latter part of his reign involved in a number of different building projects. Okay, so he's been king for about 20 years. That's, That's about halfway through. So for the last 20 years of his reign, he gets very involved in building projects. And we read about them, and I'll read them briefly in the 18 verses of chapter 8. It says that at the end of 20 years, during which Solomon built the temple of the Lord and his own palace, Solomon rebuilt the villages that Hiram had given him, settled and settled Israelites in them. Solomon then went to Hamath Zobah and captured it. He also built up Tadmor in the desert and all the store cities he had built in Hamath. He rebuilt Upper Beth and Lower Beth Horn as fortified cities with walls and with gates and bars, as well as Balath and all the store cities and all the cities for his chariots and And for for his horses, uh, whatever he desired to build in Jerusalem, in Lebanon, and throughout all the territory he ruled. So this is what he was busy doing, building things. All the people left from the Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites, these people were not Israelites, that is, their descendants remaining in the land, whom the Israelites had not destroyed, these Solomon conscripted for his slave labor force, as it is to this day. But... Solomon did not make slaves of the Israelites for his work. They were his fighting men, commanders of his captains, commanders of his chariots and charioteers. They were also King Solomon's chief officials, 250 officials supervising the men. Solomon brought Pharaoh's daughter up from the city of David to the palace he had built for her. uh, For he said, my wife must not live in the palace of David, king of Israel, because the places the ark of the Lord has entered are holy. It's interesting. He's basically saying, my wife isn't holy enough to be in this place. Think about that statement. Well, on the altar of the Lord that he had built in front of the portico, Solomon sacrificed burnt offerings to the Lord according to the daily requirement for offerings commanded by Moses. For Sabbaths, new moons, and the three annual feasts, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the Feast of Weeks, and the Feast of Tabernacles, in keeping with the ordinance of his father David, he appointed the divisions of the priests for their duties, and the Levites to lead the praise and to assist the priests according to each day's requirement. He also appointed the gatekeepers by divisions for the various gates, because this was what David, the man of God, had ordered. They did not deviate from the king's commands to the priests or to the Levites in any matter, including that of the treasuries. All Solomon's work was carried out from the day the foundation of the temple of the Lord was laid until its completion. So the temple of the Lord was finished. And then Solomon went to Ezion-Geber and Aleph on the coast of Edom, and Hiram sent him ships commanded by his own officers, men who knew the sea. These, with Solomon's men, sailed to Ophir and brought back 450 talents of gold, which they delivered to King Solomon. So we're learning all about the things that were important, to Solomon, you might be thinking, well, the temple was very important. Setting up the worship system was important. Yeah, I mean, David told him to do that, and he did it. You can do all the right things and still not have the right heart. Have you noticed that? I mean, you can be in church every Sunday, every Wednesday, go to every prayer meeting, and your heart's still not right with God. And I'm sure if you've been a Christian for more than five minutes, you've had opportunities to come to church and you just knew in your heart you weren't right. There were things that were just going on in your life that weren't right. You were in a bad place for whatever reason. And, you know, you you want to be right with God. It's why you come to church. But you're not where you're supposed to be because, because your heart isn't right with God. We're going to see Solomon did all the right things. He did all the things that were required of him, but at the end of the day, his heart wasn't right with God. All of the things he did, well, they they weren't necessarily bad things. Some were worse than others, but uh, here is what he got involved in, his many building projects. Building projects, by the way, have a way of depleting the treasury of funds. And that's for sure. You know, you start to build, you start to do things, you find out very quickly, you run out of money. And as rich as he was, he was starting to run out of funds. His many building projects had required him to conscript a foreign slave labor force. Uh, That couldn't have been a very popular move for those people who were slaves. This was the most cost-effective way for him to accomplish his goals. And with each passing year, he became more and more like the pharaohs of Egypt and the kings of the world. His many building projects required him to maintain a huge military and administrative staff, Uh, This is a big government on steroids, if you will. He even built a separate palace for his wife, the daughter of of the pharaoh of Egypt. He had many wives, and yet the truth is, this one wife was probably the most important because wives were given to kings to establish treaties. And the other major power in the area was Egypt to the south. And by having a wife who was the daughter of pharaoh, it meant that Egypt and Israel had an alliance. They would not go to war that's the way treaties were signed and sealed so whether he loved this woman was relatively unimportant as it relates to the treaty that was signed because of the marriage and so he realized this isn't really the kind of woman who should be living in jerusalem in the palace of david or in the area that the ark dwelt she was not obviously not an israelite she was an idolater. She worshipped foreign gods and and idols of Egypt. And yet he took her as wife for 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 the case so that he would be able to establish a treaty. So you're starting to see he's making decisions that are worldly. They make sense from a worldly perspective, but from the perspective of spiritual matters and a heart for God, they're terrible decisions. And we find out as you read through First Kings, you find out these wives turned his heart away from God. Ultimately ended up with a thousand women. A thousand. So, bad news. That means treaties, satisfying his lust, yes, but really more than anything else, this had everything to do with being in these alliances with foreign nations that didn't serve God. And so not only the wives, but the other nations he was aligned with. We're starting to take his heart away from God. He was really giving his heart to other things. Now, it does tell us in verses 12 through 16 that he met the minimum requirements of the law concerning sacrificial worship. There's some Christians that when, you know, Palm Sunday comes around, they go to church because they think, well, I don't want to just show up on Easter. So they come out Palm Sunday, they get the palm, they go home, and then they show up on Easter, and they don't feel like it's, you know, the only time they've been there, and then you never see them again until, of course, Christmas. So Christmas comes around. They come out to the Christmas services, and then they disappear. And then Palm Sunday rolls around again, and, you know, I think somebody called them 49ers. That's because, you know, 49 weeks out of the year, you don't see them. But those three, you do. So I think, I think there are people like that in the church Uh, probably not too many in this church, but there are people like that. I'm always happy to see them, don't get me wrong. I know I'll see them on Easter, and I greet them warmly, and I'm really excited to see them. It'd be nice to see them next Sunday, too. Hopefully we will. But the truth is, you can just do those minimum requirements. You see, he made the required daily, weekly, monthly sacrifices. You know, you might say he paid the bills and kept the lights on. He celebrated the three annual feasts according to the word of the Lord. He did what he was told. He appointed the divisions of the priests and the Levites, commanded by David. He finished the work of building the temples, instructed by his father David. But he wasn't a passionate worshiper of the Lord like his father David. You know, I would almost rather you you skip a few steps and maybe not be as regimented about the minimum requirements and worship the Lord from all your heart or with all your heart. You know, you can just be there every week, every week. You're a very religious person, and yet inside your heart is a heart of stone because you're not really passionate about God. Your passion for the Lord is the most important thing we want to talk about tonight. Just make sure that your heart of worship is exactly that, a heart of worship. David was a miserable sinner. (laughs) He had committed adultery, He had had the husband of that woman murdered. He was a terrible father. He was a killer on the battlefield. He did a lot of awful things. And yet God says of this man, he was a man after my own heart. What does that mean? Is it it better to be a big old sinner and really truly worship God than it is to do everything right and have no heart for God? Yeah, probably. I'm not excusing David's sin. God didn't excuse David's sin. But you understand that David was as passionate about his sin sometimes, unfortunately, as he was about his relationship with God. He was a passionate man, but you couldn't accuse him of not having a heart for God. You could accuse him of a lot of other things, and you'd be right to say it. And you might look at someone who's far more stable, always in church, always doing the right thing, and yet their heart is just cold. And I would say that there, we'll see that there were kings like that. They, they lived better lives in many ways than David, but they didn't have the heart for God that David had. Solomon was one of those. So, this is what we do know. He went into business with Hiram. He seemed to really do a lot of deals with this guy to the north in the area of Tyre. Tyre was a great kingdom at that time, or it became even greater as time went on. But Tyre was on the coast of Lebanon, uh, or Lebanon, uh, on the coast of the Mediterranean Sea. So he went into business with this guy for additional capital and to pay off outstanding debts. It's amazing. You get involved in these building projects, and you can be incredibly wealthy, and then all of a sudden you owe people money. And he established trade routes throughout the area along the Indian Ocean. So that would be to the east and to the south. And he was able to greatly profit from his successful business venture. In fact, we're told he made 16 tons of gold through that business. You can't say the man wasn't successful in business. So even when he got himself into trouble and maybe overextended himself, he was able to get back into business and turn it around. Sounds like a president we once had. You know, he could turn it around because he had that basic skill set to be able to make money no matter what he did. And that was Solomon. Solomon's selfish desires and his business ventures distracted him. What's distracting you today? I see it all the time. Parents get distracted with their kids. They do. I mean, from the Lord. I mean, kids are a distraction, don't get me wrong, but distracted from serving the Lord by their kids. There's no excuse you can make for not having a heart for God. Distracted, well, you know my job. Well, I can't come to church. I have to work seven days a week. Really? Because now you're violating what? The Word of God. If you're working seven days a week, look, I'm not going to tell you you have to have your Sabbath on a Saturday or a Sunday, but if you don't have one day off, if you're working seven days a week, be convicted. Seriously, I'm not going to cut you any slack. Be convicted. First of all, you're going to kill yourself. God didn't design you to work that way. I mean, we're fortunate in our nation that generally most of us get two days off a week. Mine is not Sunday, by the way, as you probably figured out already. Tuesday's kind of my day. I love Tuesdays. You know, Monday, I I used to take Mondays, but I got so much to do. And I'm just Monday's a good day for me to get my week together. Tuesday rolls around. I usually have my guitar strapped around my neck and I'm doing anything but work. That's that's one of my days. And we also take Saturday as a family Sabbath and generally enjoy that as well. So I have those days. But the thing is, if you're working seven days a week, there is no excuse. Oh, Pastor Tim, I got bills to pay. Yeah, like God can't make up the difference. Read the word. They were supposed to let the fields rest every seven years. And God would make up the difference. They didn't do it. They went into captivity for 70 years. Because for 490 years, they didn't take that Sabbath every seven years. The Sabbath is one of the most important principles of the law of God. Because it sets your priorities right. Well, I I can't say that enough. But you can get distracted by work. You can get distracted by school. You can get distracted by relationships, children, family. All of these things can distract you. Solomon was distracted from his business, or by his business ventures, from serving the Lord, from worshiping the Lord. He needed to be warned by the Lord not to turn away from him. Imagine that. God had to appear and say, hey, 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 hey. You're getting off base here. You're, You're getting out of balance. Put it back on track. Put me first, and I'll bless you abundantly. But his desires left him bankrupt, caused him to conform to the world's image of success. Have you ever met a really great Christian brother or sister, and then you don't see him for a while, a couple years go by, and you bump into them again? And it's like really hard to differentiate them from the world because they've given their heart and their time to worldly endeavors. Again, not all bad things. Having a business is a good thing. Putting in perspective, making sure that it's submitted to the Lord, that you're not doing things that are contrary to God's word, but having a business, working a job, raising a family, having a good marriage. All of these things are noble things to do, but not when they get out of balance and become the priority over your relationship with God. I always like to say it this way. Your relationship with God comes first. Then your relationship with your wife and your children and your family members. Then your job, because really it should come somewhere after that, right? And, and maybe other priorities. And, and, and put ministry after that, too. Because ministry is something, once your relationship with God is right and your family, and you're providing for them, then you can think about ministry. All right? Ministry is out of the abundance of God's blessing because you're doing the right things, the first things first. Now you have time and opportunity for ministry. But those things have to be right. They have to be in in balance. Well, Solomon's life was out of balance, and it showed. He squandered his time and his resources and limited his worship to the bare minimum, and it showed. And his potential suffered spiritually. Something else happened next that was recorded in chapter 9. And in in chapter 9, verses 1 through 12, Solomon's visited by the Queen of Sheba. This is a a well-known section of scripture. It shows up in 1 Kings chapter 10 as well. And it's recorded so that we can get an idea of how Solomon's fame had brought him to a place where the world was seeking his wisdom. Now, I'm going to say something, and it may or may not, Be true to you, but the world doesn't generally seek the wisdom of God. In fact, most of the time it considers that wisdom foolishness. There are very few people knocking on my door saying, Oh, Tim, tell me, you know, give me some wisdom. I see you left your job and you make a lot less money now that you're in ministry. Tell me, you know, give me that wisdom. What should I do? You know, they don't want to know about that. But if I left the ministry and went into business and made a billion dollars, everyone would be knocking on my door to ask for my wisdom. So when the world is looking for your wisdom, the world is looking for the wisdom that you have, you might want to ask yourself a question. Is that my wisdom or God's wisdom? Because most people don't want to hear God's wisdom. God's wisdom sounds like lose your life for my sake and you'll find it. God's wisdom says, pick up your cross daily and follow me. God's wisdom says, live not for yourself, but for others. Love your neighbor as yourself. God's wisdom is generally unpopular with the world. But the world was banging on the door of Solomon's palace to hear the wisdom that he had employed in his life. And we're given an example. It's the Queen of Sheba. Let's read verses 1 through 12. It says when the queen of sheba heard of Solomon's fame she came to Jerusalem to test him with hard questions arriving with a very great caravan with camels carrying spices large quantities of gold and precious stones she came to Solomon and talked with him about all she had on her mind Solomon answered all her questions nothing was too hard for him to explain to her and when the queen of sheba saw the wisdom of Solomon as well as the palace he had built the food on his table the seating of his officials the attending servants in their robes and the cupbearers in their robes and the burnt offerings he made at the temple of the Lord, she was overwhelmed. So she's impressed by all of this worldly stuff. doesn't say, you know, she was really impressed and overwhelmed by how spiritual it was, does, does it? So she said to the king, the report I heard in my own country about your achievements and your wisdom is true, but I did not believe what they said until I came and saw with my own eyes. Indeed, not even half... The greatness of your wisdom was told me. You have far exceeded the report I heard. How happy your men must be. How happy your officials who continually stand before you and hear your wisdom. Praise be to the Lord your God who has delighted in you and placed you on his throne as king to rule for the Lord your God. Because of the love of your God for Israel and his desire to uphold them forever, he has made you king over them to maintain justice and righteousness. And indeed he did goes on to say in verse 9 that she gave the king 120 talents of gold, large quantities of spices, precious stones. There had never been such spices as those the queen of Sheba gave to King Solomon. I wonder what they were like, right? If you like spicy food like me, you're thinking, I wonder if it was hot, right Glenn? You wonder if it was a hot spicy thing. Anyway, those these were the, the spices that they put in the food to make the food taste good. You know, generally people ate to survive, but this was a way you could eat and enjoy food. And, uh, and so the first Italians were born. I'm just kidding. Okay, so... <laughs> the men of Hiram and the men of Solomon brought gold from Ophir. They also brought algum wood and precious stones. And the king used algum wood to make steps for the temple of the Lord and for the royal palace and to make harps and lyres for the musicians. Nothing like them had ever been seen in Judah. King Solomon gave the queen of Sheba all she desired and asked for He gave her more than she had brought to him. And then she left and returned with her retinue to her own country. So this is just one example, probably, of the many times rulers and monarchs and kings and queens had come to Solomon for the wisdom that he had in business and in ruling and in government. All of this tells us that Solomon was famous. And Solomon's fame brought him the world's attention. Fame will do that. You know, I was watching. I was watching the news, and they're, all they're talking about today is Johnny Depp and Amber Heard. I, I mean, if you, you try to. Wa- I'm, I want to know what's going on, like in Europe. I, I want to know what's going on in, in our economy or at the southern border. And we're talking about two people who probably shouldn't have got married, or both knuckleheads. I'm listening to these people. And I had to turn it off. I, I can't listen to this. This is silly. And why are we even watching this? Fame brings the world's attention. Like, like, I don't mean to say who cares, but who cares? I mean, fame brings the world's attention. So these people are famous. Everybody wants to know, you know, what they had for lunch. Who cares? But Solomon's fame brought him the world's attention. The queen came to Jerusalem to test Solomon with difficult questions. She heard about his wisdom, his great achievements, and his relationship with the Lord. But his relationship with the Lord was a very formal one. It wasn't a personal one, as we know. At least it became that way. She traveled about 1,200 miles from the southern end of the Arabian Peninsula. Sheba was the prosperous nation of the Sabaeans. Sheba, sabia It's the same root of the word in a different language. The Sabaeans, the the Shebans, it included modern-day Yemen, Eritrea, and parts of Ethiopia. So it was a kingdom to the south of Egypt, to the south and to the east of Egypt. She arrived with a great caravan of goods to trade. By the way, she shows up with all this stuff. She's not just bringing gifts. She's coming to trade. As you can see, she goes home with more stuff than she came with. This is about a trading relationship. There were things that he had that she needed and vice versa. That's how economic trade works. Solomon answered all the queen's difficult questions with ease. And listen, when you think about it, your relationship with God is going to bring supernatural wisdom you're going to be able to answer people's questions. You are. Our lives and our relationship with God will often gain the attention of others. And that's okay. That's good. God's blessings should get people to look at you and ask you questions. People may come to test us with hard questions that are easy for us to answer, like the meaning of life. We can answer that. Most of the world cannot. They'll desire to talk to us about the things that are on our mind and we can talk about those things. But with God's wisdom, we can answer their questions and explain to them the truth. So being famous but using that position of influence and notoriety for the kingdom is such a good thing. That's not necessarily where Solomon was at, but I don't want to say it's all bad news if people know who you are. You can use that for God's kingdom. But Solomon's fame brought the world's attention. Solomon's great achievements brought him the world's awe, their admiration. The queen was overwhelmed with Solomon's wisdom and the splendor of his court, all of the worldly trappings. She was impressed by his ability to answer all of her difficult questions and was in awe of his palace and his incredible wealth. It's amazing, when someone's wealthy, it's funny, people who want to be wealthy when they're around wealthy people act differently. Have you ever noticed this? It's, it's an interesting thing. People who really are materialistic, when they find themselves around people they perceive to be wealthy, they would just basically shrink down and climb into their wallet if they could. It's, like, it's, it's amazing. They, just, they would just hop into their wallet. They, 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 want, they want to be wherever that person is because they feel like money might just fall out of that pocket and land in theirs. If that's their priority, being around people like that, that, that just makes them happy. It's the only time you see them smile. It's crazy. I'm not that impressed by wealth, but some people really are. And she was. Solomon's achievements and his wisdom far exceeded the queen's expectations. They, it really did. And people may be overwhelmed by God's blessings on us, but may they be overwhelmed by God, not us. They'll, they'll know that God's blessings are real and true by closely examining us if we show them the truth about God's blessings. With God's wisdom, we can direct them to the author of blessing in our lives. Isn't that the point? Isn't that the point? Well, you know, Solomon's wise leadership also brought the world's affection. The world loves wise leadership, until they don't. (laughs) It's so crazy how things change. The queen recognized that the Lord had abundantly blessed Solomon with wisdom She was even envious of those who had the privilege to serve in Solomon's court, and she longed to stand in Solomon's presence and glean from his wisdom. Now, that was probably a good thing. But Solomon's ability to lead caused the queen to praise the Lord, the God of Israel. Now, whether that was sincere or just an acknowledgement of his God, the the, the point is that's a good thing that came out of this. It's a good thing when people realize that your wisdom comes from God. Amen? Amen. But you have to tell them that. So you have wisdom because you can ask of God and he'll give you wisdom without measure, liberally, as much as you can receive. And when people see that wisdom, they'll say, oh, you're such a young person, but you're so wise. And then that's your opportunity. That's your cue to introduce them to the God who blessed you with that wisdom through Jesus Christ. People may desire to... Spend time listening to the things we have to share. Not a bad thing. They'll even praise God for his grace to us and give him glory for his goodness to others. But but that's our position. If you're given wealth or influence or wisdom, use those things that God has blessed you with to promote the truth and share the gospel of Jesus Christ. With God's wisdom, we can direct them to a personal relationship with God. Finally, Solomon's business relationships brought him the world's abundance. And it's not a bad thing to be successful, okay? It's not. It's what you do with that. The queen, she came there to trade. She traded gold, spices, precious stones with Solomon, and then she returned home. He was able to profit greatly from this trade relationship. He ended up with four and a half tons of gold. Again, a lot of gold. And she was able to trade her wealth for an abundance of goods needed in Sheba. She had gold. She needed other things. She had spices. She needed other things. And what Solomon did, he established trade routes. We talked about this in chapter 8 throughout the area along the Indian Ocean. So this would have gone right past the area of Sheba. He went into business, as we said, with, with Hiram to raise extra capital and was very profitable. From him, he got 16 tons of gold, or at least being in business. So gold is pouring in. Now Solomon's economic success caused other nations to trade with Israel. That's what we learned here in this chapter in uh, verses 10 and 11. We were, we're looking at uh, 10 and 11 there. He, he was trading with these, with these other nations and going into business with these other nations. And people may begin to bless us with an outpouring of thanksgiving as well. That's what was happening here. They were starting to be thankful... Uh, for what God had done through Solomon because they were being benefited by his wisdom financially, right? So we're talking about the world's abundance. And, you know, they were really happy about that. They, they were very uh, thankful for all that God had done for them through Solomon's wisdom. So people may begin to bless us with an outpouring of thanksgiving. They may be, may be very happy. They, they'll want to invest in m- a mutually beneficial relationship with us. You know, wealth and abundance does attract attention. It's what you do with that. Do you turn it around and bring it to the attention? Do you bring them to the attention of God? Do you bring their attention to God? Do you point them in the direction of God? Or do you just sort of receive that, those accolades and that adoration yourself? Very successful business people will often say, well, God blessed me, and they'll give testimony. I have to stop and think of, Mike, the pillow guy, right? Mike Lindell, the pillow guy. I mean, that guy always gives the glory to God. And he's a very successful man. And people have gone after him because he stands up for the gospel. They hate him. They love his pillows, I guess, but they hate him. Why? Because he stands for God. And, and you think about it. What is he doing with all of his wealth? And what is he doing? He's promoting the truth of the gospel. Say what you want, but everyone knows where he stands. I think that's a good thing. That's a good testimony. Well, with God's wisdom, we can invest our blessings in others as they invest in us. It's all about relationships. These things can bring attention, they can bring the world's attention, the world's awe, the world's affection, the world's abundance. But you can take that and turn it around and bless them by introducing them to the one who blessed you. Amen? So these things aren't bad, it's what you do with them, it's your priorities reach your potential, but reach your spiritual potential as well. Okay, finally now we're told just how wealthy this guy was. In verses 13 through 28, we hear all about Solomon's great wealth, and I'll read it. The weight of the gold that Solomon received yearly was 666 talents, not including the revenues brought by the merchants and traders. Also, All the kings of Arabia and the governors of the land brought gold and silver to Solomon. King Solomon made 200 large shields of hammered gold. 600 beckas of hammered gold went into each shield. He also made 300 small shields of hammered gold with 300 beckas of gold in each shield. The king put them in the palace of the forest of Lebanon. This is just decorations, (laughs) cold decorations. Then the king made a great throne inlaid with ivory. So I guess Peter wouldn't have been happy. And overlaid with pure gold, the throne had six steps and a footstool of gold was attached to it. And on both sides of the seat were armrests with a lion standing beside each of them. Twelve lions stood on the six steps, one at either end of each step. Nothing like it had ever been made for any other kingdom. All King Solomon's goblets were gold. And all the household articles in the palace of the forest of Lebanon were pure gold. Nothing was made of silver because silver was considered of little value in Solomon's day. The king had a fleet of trading ships manned by Hiram's men. Once every three years it returned, carrying gold, silver, and ivory, and apes and baboons. (laughs) I can't read that without laughing. King Solomon was greater in riches and wisdom than all the other kings of the earth. All the kings of the earth sought audience with Solomon to hear the wisdom God had put in his heart. Year after year, everyone who came brought a gift, articles of silver and gold and robes and weapons and spices and horses and mules. Solomon had 4,000 stalls for horses and chariots, and 12,000 horses, which he kept in the chariot cities and also with him in Jerusalem. He ruled over all the kings from the river, that is the Euphrates River, to the land of the Philistines, that is the Mediterranean Sea. As far as the border of Egypt, which is in the south, the king made silver as common in Jerusalem as stones and cedar as plentiful as sycamore fig trees in the foothills. Solomon's horses were imported from Egypt and from all other countries. So we learn all about just how wealthy this man was. He received an abundance of gold during his reign, clearly. He received annual revenues each year of 25 tons of gold from his business venture with Hiram. Pretty successful. He received additional revenues of gold from his various trade relationships, and he used his abundance of gold to increase the splendor of his palace. Now notice, he's not decorating the temple. The gold he used to decorate the temple was given to him from his father, David. This is the gold he's using to sort of augment his splendor, to impress people. He decorated the palace of the forest of Lebanon—that's the name of his palace—with <laughs> two hundred seven and a half pound and three hundred three and three quarter pound shields. He made a great throne inlaid with ivory and overlaid with gold, which was described. And his, his tableware—you know how we always say silverware, but what we really mean is flatware, right? We don't. How many of us actually eat with silver silverware? If you do, God bless you. Uh, but he only used gold tableware, if you can imagine such a thing. No silverware within his grand palace complex. He built and maintained a fleet of trading ships which sailed throughout the Mediterranean. These were in addition to the ships that had sailed along the Indian Ocean. These ships traveled the trade routes of the Phoenicians in Europe and northern Africa. And they returned with precious cargo after sailing for three years. Imagine that. Solomon's interest in biology may have been the reason for purchasing the primates, the apes and the baboons. Okay? Solomon's wisdom was sought by all the surrounding nations. His wealth and his wisdom were blessings from the Lord. And those that sought an audience with him compensated him for sharing his wisdom. Now, Solomon traded chariots and horses along the trade routes with Egypt and Cilicia as well. So we're learning about all of his business ventures. He purchased many chariots and horses for himself. And by the way, the law prohibited this. In Deuteronomy chapter 17, verses 16 through 17, the law prohibited the king from multiplying three things. That is, having an excess of horses, wives, and silver and gold. What were the three things that Solomon multiplied more than anything else? Horses, wives, silver and gold. Horses were to build armies. Wives were to make treaties. Silver and gold was to gain power. He did the very thing he shouldn't have done. His love for chariots and horses was equal to his love for gold and his love for women, I suppose. He imported and exported horses and chariots. His business venture with the surrounding nations was extremely profitable. And he took advantage of being strategically located along the north-south trade routes. He had it all going on, but the potential of his heart for God was never tapped to its fullest because he got distracted with success. Be very careful about being successful in anything other than worshiping God. There's nothing wrong with success. It's all good if you use it to the glory of God. Finally, we learn about his death. And and you can learn a lot more about Solomon in the book of 1 Kings. Uh, This Book written by Ezra is really just given to us to give us a summary of some of what Solomon accomplished. There's much more written about him, and we studied that years ago when we studied First Kings. But now we read in verse 29: As for the other events of Solomon's reign, from beginning to end, are they not written in the records of Nathan the prophet and the prophecy of Ahijah the Shilonite, and in the visions of Edo the seer concerning Jeroboam son of Nebat? Solomon reigned in Jerusalem over all Israel 40 years. Then he rested with his fathers and was buried in the city of David, his father, and Rehoboam, his son, succeeded him as king. So the record of Solomon's, all of Solomon's other accomplishments and his wisdom, for the most part, has been lost to history. We have some things written in 1 Kings and here in 2 Chronicles, but there were other books, many books written, and we've lost those like the Book of the Annals of Solomon, the Records of Nathan the Prophet, the Prophecy of Ahijah the Shilonite, and the Visions of Edo the Cedar. We have excerpts, but we don't have those books. So we don't even know the half of what Solomon accomplished. But we know enough. We know enough. Because remember, it was Solomon who wrote many or most of the Proverbs, the Song of Solomon, and the Book of Ecclesiastes. So, if you want to learn more about Solomon who he was and how he thought, and the conclusion he came to at the end of his life where it was basically this. Here's the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments for this is the whole duty of man. This is after the book of Ecclesiastes exhausted every other thing you could possibly do. He finally, at the end of his life, came to the conclusion, fear God and keep his commandments for this is the whole duty of man. Oh, the beginning of his life was filled with such great potential. His gifts were unparalleled and his accomplishments unrivaled. He started his reign with a strong devotion for the Lord and for his temple. The end of his life was filled with such great regret. He ultimately realized the futility of a life lived after the flesh. He inherited an empire, but strangely enough, only passed on one-sixth of it to his son. He ended his reign with a strong conviction of his own foolishness. The irony of Solomon is that he was both the world's wisest man and yet its greatest fool. Solomon died, though, trusting in faith, trusting in the Lord, having reigned as king for a total of 40 years. He rested with his fathers in Sheol, waiting with anticipation for the promised Messiah, a man who realized the truth at the end of his life, but never reached his full potential. I hope that never describes any of us. His fathers, when it says he rested with his fathers, is a subtle reference to the afterlife. Called Sheol, or Hades, It's the place of departed spirits. It's later called Abraham's bosom by Jesus in Luke's Gospel, chapter 16, verse 22. And then we know Rehoboam, his son, succeeded his father Solomon as king of Israel. Thus, the life of Solomon... Let's pray. Lord Heavenly Father, we want to reach our full potential in you. You've gifted us and blessed us with many talents and abilities and and with resources. And may we use those resources, those talents and those abilities to honor you, to live for you. And may the attention we receive as we become successful, may we turn that around and direct others to you. We ask these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.